welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is a pretty large section of Scripture with numerous principles which we've already learned in previous chapters. So we're going to finish chapter 5 today. I'm not going to pick it apart. Instead, I'm just going to highlight some of the things we see here that are new. Uh, This passage in Ecclesiastes 5 very closely mirrors what I read to you earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 6. I've titled this message, Occupied with Gladness. In review of Solomon's previous warning earlier in the chapter, he cautioned that our words, should, uh, our words to God should be uh, informed by the Word. They shouldn't be impulsive, but rather informed by what we glean from Scripture as we are gathered together as God's people. By contrast, we saw that the sacrifice of the fool is a vow or a pledge made in haste without first thinking. In verse 7, Solomon says that in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, refers to the the fool's vain, uh, impetuous babble. The dreamer, we learned, claims to have a lot to talk about, but just adds little substance to the conversation. Uh, This is because he hasn't first listened to God, Uh, listened to God first last week. So his, his, the fool's words are not informed. Uh, he's all talk. He's got plenty to say. But as we used to say back in Texas, he's all hat, no cattle. <laughs> all hat, no cattle. In Solomon's day, when a person would ramble about a dream or some other personal experience they had, uh, he could only ramble to those within earshot, well, as far as it would go. Today, the voice of a fool Solomon described in verse 3, well, he writes a blog. He signs a book deal via the internet pontificates to the whole world endlessly. It never ends and never ends. Uh, But you will find that the person or persons claiming dreams and visions, they always have at least one critical theological flaw. There's always one critical flaw. The writer of the book, and I have read this cover to cover years ago, uh, the book Heaven is for Real, for example. He left out one crucial element in his fantasy about heaven. He forgot to tell the reader how to get there. That's pretty crucial. In Christ's words, he says it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on a third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. Christ rose again from the third day. We read about that uh, in our songs, in the lyrics of our songs. We sang that. Somehow the gospel was left out of that man's book. Meanwhile, the author tells his readers that uh, God gave him his vision, his dream, his experience whatever you want to call it, whatever it was. He says he was given that so he could write a book so that people everywhere could finally know that heaven is for real. Well, that just leaves me dumbfounded as to what this book is for. 
Friends, there are men of depraved mind. They're attacking the preeminence and the sufficiency of Scripture. They're replacing it with their own books. And they're raking in millions. Be discerning, folks. Be discerning. If someone's experience reads uh, like it came from the book of Acts, it, it isn't like uh, the Holy Spirit is working. It's an evidence of plagiarism. It's plagiarism. It's why the book is called The Acts of the Apostles and not The Acts of the Everyday Christian Joe. The Acts of the Apostles. Empty words about fictitious dreams is where we left off in verses 1 through 7. And as I stated last time, this is worth repeating. It's very worth repeating. Christ does not sanctify His church through what one person has claimed to see. Christ sanctifies His church through what we all see together in Scripture. Jesus prayed for His disciples saying this in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is just one of the many reasons uh, that we obey 1 Timothy 4.13 each Sunday where Paul says, give attention or give special attention to the public reading of Scripture. So now in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as we continue in verse 8, we read where Solomon returns our attention again to the poor. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, kind of a longer text than we normally uh, read together. This is from the New American Standard Bible. Notice the passage starts out negative, but it ends pretty positive. Solomon says, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field, the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun... Riches being hoarded by their owner to his own hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Next to Solomon's conclusion. Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. 
This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Solomon begins by, once again, uh, challenging, uh, really denouncing oppression of the poor. Back in chapter 4 and verse 1, he wrote this, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. Folks, injustice toward the poor, it is a major concern of this king of Israel. Major concern. Major concern in the Gospels. Woven into the Mosaic Law is compassion for the poor. The king knows that. Uh, Israel was warned not to pervert justice by oppressing the orphan or the widow. Not even to take a, a widow's garment. Not even to hold it as a pledge. Israel was taught uh, to extend the hand freely in generosity. What does the, Lord, the Lord's brother James in the New Testament divine, uh, define as true religion? you remember? True and undefiled religion is this. Pure and undefiled religion is this. To visit the orphan and the widow in their distress, right? Keep oneself unstained from the world. Why do you think James is so emphatic? James is very emphatic in that passage. Well, he continues to explain why in chapter 2. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you? That's in James chapter 2. The Greek word there for oppress means uh, to wield power, to to maintain control by wielding power, and and the rich enjoy a dynasty. In in fact, the Greek word there, um, you can almost see it in in the Greek word. It's kata dynasteo. This dynasty is right there present in the word. It describes a dynasty of the rich. Causes oppression. Uh, one way that the rich are said to oppress the poor in James is how? By dragging them into court, right? James says, don't they drag you into court? They have the resources to do whatever they want. The way that the rich are oppressed, oppressing the poor in Ecclesiastes is, is somewhat different. It's more subtle. It's actually more sinister. We aren't going to like it very well. We aren't going to want to hear it. In fact, I'm going to give a signal. When it's a good time to excuse yourself for a bathroom break, to give a signal. That says, what's that in, in Hawaiian, right? Stay cool? That's the signal. Stay cool. We're going to get there. But first Solomon says, we shouldn't be shocked to hear that those who are in authority, uh, that they act corruptly. One back scratches another. They kind of watch out for one another. They take care of one another. The reference to the king in, uh, is in verse 9. Uh, I'm told that it is incredibly difficult to translate uh, that Hebrew into English. One of the most difficult texts in the Bible, I'm told, to translate. I kind of favor the King James Version and the translation in verse 9. That places the king atop of a pyramid scheme. 
It reads, The prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. I, I think that translation fits the context best. Solomon is describing how corruption eats at a working man's dollar and officials uh, take from it all the way to the top. All the way to the top, uh, they take advantage. Even the king gets a cut of your produce. You follow me? Even he gets from your field, that which you produce. Uh, in the vernacular language, just to get real technical here, verses 8 and 9 in the Hebrew literally read this. Everyone on the bottom suffers from trickle-up economics. No, I just made that up. They do, though. The people at the bottom suffer from trickle-up economics. Uh, trickle-up economics. Um, God's Word sure transcends time, doesn't it? Never goes out of date. It's what every generation faces. Don't fear. Don't fear. When there is strong, a strong economy and record profits, who benefits most? Guys and gals at the top. It doesn't bother me, folks. It really does not bother me or, or shock me at all. I don't lie awake at night thinking about it. Why? Because God is going to give them their reward. He is going to give them their reward. We are going to get our reward. Verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Solomon assured us back in chapter 4, it is impossible for money to satisfy. It is impossible for money to satisfy. If your love is for money, which our reading earlier said is, said is a root of all kinds of evil, you, you can never amass enough if you love money. There's never enough. Not only that, but when your goods increase, your friends and relatives who consume them also increase. If you're willing to accept the lie that money won't change you, that is a lie, by the way, you can be assured that it will change everybody around you. It will. It will affect everyone you know when you have a lot of money. When you have more, when you have much money, uh, the person surrounding you will consume more. They will consume more. You know, I want to see a good illustration of this, or just hear a good illustration of this. When Russell Lauks comes home from a hard hard week. He's actually still up in, in uh, Chicago right now. Hard-working man. He buys a truckload of groceries so that Stacy can cook up some spaghetti, put a big batch of spaghetti and meatballs, and by the time Russell sits down at the table and finishes prayer, it's miraculously all gone. It's all gone. It's disappeared. And Russell's reward is in verse 11. What advantage has the owner enjoyed except to look on? So all you can do is watch. No, I'm just having fun. I'm having fun. That is not Russell's experience. Russell's experience is actually in verse 12. He's a working man. He works hard. He puts in long hours. It says his sleep is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. doesn't bother him uh, if at the end of dinner it's all gobbled up. That's fine with him. He just rises up early the next week. 
And he does it all over again. He's a hard-working man. He sleeps well. He works hard and gladly shares what he has. I wish someone would have seven children so that I could quit using Russell as an illustration. But somebody please have seven children. I pick on him a little bit. I like that man and his wife, Stacy. Good people, good people. In verse 11, instead the rich man is the one who's distressed even while his barns overflow with excess. Barns are full and overflowing. The word stomach there in, in verse 12, it isn't present in the Hebrew, but it is meant to suggest that in contrast to the poorer man whose stomach is partially full or maybe not full, the rich man enjoys much fullness. Very, very full. Uh, his stomach may never lack. We find out his tummy always aches. His tummy always aches. He suffers from ulcers. Because the people who consume his goods, they come, they come from everywhere. Everyone is consuming his stuff. They aren't even related to him. His taxes kill him can't sleep at night because he's trying to find uh, another place to shelter his money because he has so much. I was watching a video this past week, kind of funny. It came from uh, a 401k type investment place. It just said, you want to keep more of your money. Well, who doesn't want to keep more of your money? So I, I, I peeked into that for a little while, and it was really related to the changing tax situation and how the, the shelter for passing on to your relatives, whether that 11 million threshold is going to be cut back down to like half of that 5.5 or 6 million threshold. And I'm just like, wow, that's what they got to worry about. Lost interest in that video quickly. I'm like, really? That's what you're really worried about? Wow. Glad I don't have to worry about that. People consume his goods, taxes kill him, sleep, sleep is interrupted because he's concocting ways to try, to try to make more, always wanting more, because he's never satisfied. And the more that he earns, the more that he worries about how he's going to hold on to it and how he's going to keep it, especially in a stock market calamity. What's going to happen, he asks. Folks, who would you rather be in this picture? I think at this moment, probably many of us would say, well, you know, I'd still probably rather be the rich guy. <laughs> Let's be honest. Eh, maybe deal with, a, you know, have some Pepto-Bismol. Still rather be the rich guy. But we haven't, we haven't reached the end of the passage yet. It's time. Stay cool. I think that's what that means. Stay cool. There is a grievous evil in verse 13. This is where it gets tough. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. The word hurt there implies a calamity. What is the calamity? Well, in this, in this case, it materializes as a, as a bad investment. A bad investment. It says when those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him, meaning the son. Not only no spaghetti and meatballs for him, there's none left over for his family, none for his son. 
wealth lost through a sour investment. That's the calamity. But what is the grievous evil? Look at verse 13. What is the grievous evil in the passage that prompted the calamity? Look for it. The grievous evil is riches being hoarded by their owner. That's the grievous evil. That someone would have so much and keep it all to themselves. In the context, wealth being hoarded is evil because it becomes the object of what is being denied to the poor. It's the source of oppression, the hoarding. There's no justice for the poor. And we think, how much money should I have in my retirement plan? How much should I put away before I decide to become generous? Folks, it'll never be enough for the lover of money. It'll never be a threshold where it's, now I've got enough, where I can finally be generous. And he or she in the passage eventually loses it all. Loses it all. Colossians 3.5 says, greed equals idolatry. Law says, I'm Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon. That's the evil. This is going to blow your mind. This is, this, this is wow. Look back at verse 6. At the fool who was talking uh, impulsively, made empty vows about what he would do for the Lord, the dreamer. It says in verse 6, Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice, meaning your vow or your pledge, and destroy the work of your hands? Who destroyed the wealth by calamity? God did. God did. This is the result of the earlier part of the chapter. The man, the rich man has said, you know, God, if you'll make me successful, the woman, if you'll give me everything that I want, well, then in that day when I finally get successful, then I'll be generous. Then that someday finally comes, finally comes. You've benefited from the system. You have more than you need. You decide to hoard it. Why do you think God looks at that? How does he look at that? This is why verse 1 calls such a person a fool. Because God deems hoarding wealth as oppression and injustice for the poor. That's how God sees it. It is oppressive to the poor. And in judgment, God may decide to throw, uh, throw in a tow truck that will come and repossess the poor. Or repossess the money and give it to the poor. Through some kind of calamity. Folks, it could be natural disaster. It could be a stock market crash. It could be any number of things. It could be death. And finally, you part with it. Uh, Do most Christians in America, uh, including myself, do we have more than enough? Do we have more than we actually need? Most of us do. Folks, this this principle in this passage about oppressing the poor and hoarding wealth... uh, It frightens me. It frightens me to the point I dare not be stingy to the poor. Dare not be stingy. Do you notice that we're we're hitting the same principle again now in the Old Testament that that we did with Jesus back in Luke about caring for the poor 
and taking care of their needs. Um, compassion for the poor woven throughout Scripture, cover to cover, taking care of the poor person. And, and I praise Jesus. I really do. I, I praise Him that God has revealed this to us in Scripture. He's, he's used, used the same message through the same revelation as He always does. God's revealed compassion to the poor. God has added it. Therefore, He has done the work of adding it to our church budget. I'm making no exaggeration. I'm suspicious of my flesh. I don't trust my flesh. It makes me want to keep too much. It makes me want to hoard for myself. And our ministry of sharing with impoverished Christians in poor nations, our ministry to the poor... Pastor Weiler calls it the CPR, Christian Poverty Relief. That's a divine priority, repeatedly engraved on the pages of Scripture. You see it all over. Our budget with collecting for that, it keeps compassion for the poor right at the front and center of our attention. It is, as 1 Corinthians 16 describes, Paul calls it there, the ministry to the saints concern for the impoverished in Christ and through our budget it becomes a portion of what we collect on the first day of every week that's what the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is we collect on the first day of every week why? for the poor first, first for the poor well it's by God's grace that he revealed this to us again using the same method he reveals everything to us through the preaching of God's word where we all see it together We all see it together. Scripture is God's supernatural revelation. He reveals to us all together. There's a song that you you have all heard. It's a good sounding song. It is. It is well done. It's an emotional song. It is by a, a very talented group called Third Day. You might have heard it. It's the title of the song is Revelation, right? Look it up when you leave it. It is really a masterful song, uh, poetically. And the song's refrain goes something like this. Give me a revelation. Show me what to do. Because I've been trying to find my way. I haven't got a clue. Tell me, should I stay here? Or do I need to move? It says again, give me a revelation. I've got nothing without you. I've got nothing without you. I love the rhythm of that song. I do not like the theology of that song. The problem is that the request of that song for a revelation is mystical. It's asking God for a new revelation, like a dream or a vision, when God has already given us the revelation. He's already provided it for us. He has told you and me what to do. He has shown us what to do in His Word. Uh, He showed us the way. We shouldn't be lying to God and say, well, we haven't got a clue. No, we've got a clue. God has made His will crystal clear. Crystal clear. He says, if a brother or sister in Christ is without food or covering, James 2.15, then what? Then cover them. He says in Mark 16, verse 15, Proclaim the gospel, that is the will of God. 
2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word in season and out of season. Jesus says, feed my sheep. That's the will of God. John 21, verse 17. Paul writes, Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's Ephesians 6, verse 4. That is the will of God. And Jesus said, If I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's John 13. That's where we learn. When we studied the Gospel of Luke, we went there. Found out that foot washing isn't about dirty feet. It's about Christian servitude. Meeting the needs of other Christians. Boy, that serves as a perfect segue to to promote Find Your Ministry Month. Find Your Ministry Month, which starts next Sunday in May. The month of May is Find Your Ministry Month. Just a little advertisement here in the middle. Boy, none of us, folks, none of us want to be standing before the Lord in His day saying, you know, Lord, I would have done something if You just would have shown me what to do. But I've been waiting for You to give me a revelation so I can do something great for You. Give me a revelation. I would have done something. Had you given me a revelation. But God has already asked you and me to do some great things for his kingdom. Great things for his kingdom in scripture. Can you vacuum? Can you mow? Can you fix an air conditioner? Can you sing songs? Can you play songs? Can you teach young children a lesson about Jesus? Can you teach them to sing? Folks... The problem is our measure of great, it's all out of calibration. All out of calibration. This is one of the, the most encouraging principles to me that we can find in Scripture, uh, the washing of feet. Uh, these are great things. Here's the great things. Can you change a diaper? Can you, can you care for, for children in children's church while they're Parents are out here getting a break listening to God's Word. All these ministries, they are great ministries. Can you pass a background check? Not needed for all ministries. We do that for children's, children's ministries. Also, don't be dissuaded if there is a little something in your background. Uh, bounce check a long while back, certain things. That, that doesn't necessarily disqualify you. But we will, we will ask for children's ministries to, for a background check. Um, no worries if you can't. The problem is some of us suffer from Naaman's disease. Remember what Naaman's disease was? I'm not talking about his leprosy. God's prophet Elisha gave that mighty Syrian general instructions to go dip in the Jordan seven times. And what did Naaman do? He departed furious. He was upset. He left. Until a wise servant asked Naaman this, Had God's prophet told you to do some great thing? Would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? Are you still waiting to do some great thing? Something that you think is great? Jesus said, Wash feet. Wash feet. And most Christians say, You know, nah. I'm going to wait. I'm going to delay until God asks me to do something great. Folks, the day is here. 
I bet if Jesus were standing next to us Sunday to Sunday, if he were standing right there and we could see him, oh, we'd be scrubbing some feet. I guarantee you. Well, we'd be making the best oven casserole for the lunches. Oh, if Jesus were here, we'd be the last to leave after cleanup. I know I would. Guess what? God views seemingly insignificant menial labor as great. In fact, it was on the same occasion during the Last Supper, right before Jesus washed his disciples' feet, when there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them is to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said, The greatest among you must become like a servant, and I am among you as the one who serves. Boy, consider that the next time that you think, ah, teaching Sunday school to two or three kids is a waste of my time. God sees it as great. It is great. All these things are great. Small church, it's great. It is great. You know, I came from, and I don't have a problem at all with big churches, at all. I came from one, it was a great church. But you know what, you could really get lost in a big church. If you didn't really want to do much, you could kind of shuffle in, go through the doors, get your bulletin, shuffle out again. Well, you can't do that quite as easy in a smaller church. Things that need to be done. Great things for God that need to be done. That's the end of the three-minute uh, promotion for next month. All right, sorry. I know it wasn't in the passage, but I had to get it in there somewhere. Where was I? Oh, yeah, hoarding. Hoarding, time, talent, and treasure. You know, God views hoarding as oppression of the poor. And as the king of Israel, Solomon, oh, Solomon was rightly offended by what he saw in the mirror every day. He saw, boy, I ain't measuring up. And he sees the judgment in verse 15 coming. It says, as he came naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. What is? Well, exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Toiling for the wind. Folks, hoarding is toiling for the wind. Uh, I realize some might disagree, uh, but the bad rap that Solomon usually gets about always being negative, I think it's undeserved. I think it's undeserved. I think Bible commentators judge him wrongly. I truly do, and here's why. Naked he came from his mother's womb, so also he will return carrying nothing in his hand. Do you know why that sounds so negative to us? Because we want to take what we have with us. So that sounds very, very negative. We want to take what we own with us. So we see his statement as a negative statement. But Solomon is not always negative about life under the sun. He's negative toward the wrong kind of life lived under the sun. In this context, the wrong kind of life is hoarding wealth. Hoarding wealth, it's a grievous evil, he says. And in verse 17, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness and with great vexation, sickness and anger. This describes the life of the fool who has filled his barns, thereby oppressing the poor, and he takes nothing with him on the day that God calls for his soul to be surrendered. Sound familiar? 
That's Jesus describing the fool in John chapter 12. It's the same lesson. Do you see what the king of Israel is doing, what Solomon is doing? This is what he's doing. I like this book. I take this as an encouragement. Uh, These principles are wonderful. He's teaching us how to live rightly by exposing what is living wrongly. This is God's wisdom for life. And Solomon is redirecting our hearts, just as Jesus did, away from the world, which is temporal. As Jesus said, sell your possessions, give to the poor. You'll have treasure up in heaven. Identical principle in Luke 12, verse 33. By the way, that is Jesus' application of the, of the story on the parable of the barns, the rich man and his barns. That's how he finishes, finishes that passage in Luke chapter 12. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. You will have treasure on heaven. Boy, Jesus would be labeled a negative preacher if he was around today. He would, people wouldn't like to hear that. People in churches whose God is their belly, they'd, they'd yell out, they'd say, crucify him. I don't like what he has to say about my money. Hands off, right? I think we've all passed through that phase, at least partially. In 1 John 3.15, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's our future is belonging to Christ. We're going to live forever. We're going to be blessed forever. The Apostle Paul, in our scripture reading from 1 Timothy 6, said this, we have, not, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Boy, is he quoting Solomon or what? Is Paul being negative? No. Paul is not being negative. He's, he's sharpening us to love what Christ loves. And he's supplying this identical principle of Solomon. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. What did Solomon say? Lost in a bad investment. Fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Solomon in a minute is going to say, enjoy. Enjoy what God has given you. Instruct them to do good, says Paul. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Sound like Solomon? Yep. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Being generous, not hoarding wealth. Folks, a pastor isn't held to a different moral level than everyone else. The pastor is to be an example. He doesn't say, well, that doing certain things are for the pastor, but not for the rest of us. That's, that's, that's a problem with clergy and other, and, other, and other things like, well, this applies to the pastor and he should be doing this, but the rest of us shouldn't. When in reality, the same principles are for us all. What do you think with hoarding and storing up money and wealth in this earth? What do you think of a pastor who would store away for himself millions of dollars? Something to think about. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And King Solomon wants you to experience the same and avoid the mistakes of this rich fool. Look at this conclusion then in verse 18. 
Here's what Solomon says. This is where it gets positive. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. It's his reward under the sun. His reward on earth. Furthermore, he says, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Again, it's God's reward under the sun to enjoy what you have. And rather than hoarding, rather than sleepless nights with vexation and worry, This man, poor or rich, this man who's generous just loses track of the years that God gives him uh, due to the enjoyment. He has so much enjoyment, he says, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Are you just happy with what you have? Some of us have a little, some of us have a lot, but are you enjoying what God has blessed you with? Solomon says, enjoy it. Enjoy it. You know, we've been mistaken if we think that Solomon expects all of us to view life as miserable. He, he doesn't. Rather, Solomon gives both rich and poor license to enjoy life under the sun. As Jesus said, I came that you might have life, and that you might have it abundantly. Folks, that begins today, not when he returns. Under the sun is where you can have your cake and eat it too. I was going to give that the title, or that was going to be the title of my message. Have your cake and eat it too. Then it sounded too much like a book that Joel Osteen might write. (laughs) After five chapters, Solomon leaves us with a choice. Exist to amass a lot of wealth and oppress the poor by hoarding it, but it'll never buy happiness. It'll never be enough. And money can't buy me love. That's the Beatles. It will only cause sleepless nights, vexation, worry, and anger. You're going to lose it someday anyhow. You're going to have to part with it one way or another. Why not part with it, at least a portion of it, doing the will of God? What an opportunity. It's great. It's great. Any takers, I'll take that. I'll take that. You can be an honest working man who eats and drinks and is satisfied with whatever amount he has. If you're rich, rejoice, have your reward, eat and drink in this life as well. Give generously to the poor. Trust God that day by day, both the poor man and the rich man, that God is going to provide, that God is going to keep giving. Be so preoccupied with doing good that you lose track of time. Love doing the work of God For the man or the woman who does good, God will keep their heart occupied with gladness. That's what we do under the sun. As we close, same contrast is visible between two kings of Israel. The wicked king, Jehoiakim, and his righteous father, Josiah. Technically a grandfather, but Scripture often refers to forefathers. But Jehoiakim and his father, Josiah, Jehoiakim oppressed the poor. He lived in opulence. He lived for this world. 
The prophet Jeremiah addresses him in Jeremiah 22, verse 13, saying to Jehoiakim, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Then Jeremiah says, do you become a king because you're competing in cedar? Oh, don't say God doesn't have a sense of humor. Saying, you look like you're in a competition for the most cedar. Then the Lord said concerning his father Josiah, oh, this is good. This is good. Did not, saying to Jehoiakim about his father, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is that, is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But he says to Jehoiakim, your eyes and your heart are intent only on your own dishonest gain and on shedding of innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. It went well for Josiah. He had a lot and he shared a lot. He got to enjoy the fat of the land and care for the poor. The Lord declares it. It went well with him. Then there was his grandson Jehoiakim. He hoarded it. He lived in opulence. He oppressed the poor. I'll let you read the, la- the, the rest of Jeremiah chapter 22. It didn't go so well for him. Whether you are wealthy or not so much, God allows you to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy it. Praise God. Live for Him. But you don't need to hoard money. And don't forget the poor who are in Christ. I'm going to close today. didn't know how to quite wrap this up, so I was going to share a proverb. I'm going to ask everyone to stand as we read uh, Proverbs 3 together. Kind of Solomon here kind of summarizes this whole principle that we've been talking about. And we'll have a closing song. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Find them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes for the fear of the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow new wine. Praise Jesus.